following is a paid program on 630 WLAP. This is the Tom Dupree Show on News Radio 630 WLAP and WLAP.com. Welcome to the camp. I guess you all know why we're here. My name is Tommy, and I became aware this year. If you want to follow me, you've got to play pinball. And put in your earplugs, put on your eye shades, you know where to put the cork. Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. And uh, we have with us today in the studio uh, our representative, Andy Barr. Andy, are they going to make a movie out of you uh, and put you in the movies at some point? I'm sure they will not. You, you just have to act naturally. <laughs> That's right. How you doing? Fine. So we don't have, we've only got half an hour with you today. So um, we might as well jump into what's been going on and... Uh, you go ahead and tell us what your experience has been here lately. Uh, I think it's important that the listeners get a taste of what's going on in Congress. And uh, I always appreciate it when you're willing to to do the show and, and come in and, and spend your time that's so important on the weekends to um, – to basically educate our listeners on, on what's happening. And well, thanks. It's, it's just important. To, it's an important service. And thank you so much for doing it. Oh, thanks a lot, Tom. And uh, sorry, I only have a half an hour. I'm about ready to it's go okay. out to, to Keeneland uh, to do a charity 5K race uh, for the Shepherd's House, which is a terrific organization. Right. The, your listeners don't know they're, they're an addiction recovery group. And um, we need that now uh, in this in this state, and we need it in our country. And um, they do wonderful, wonderful work, right? Uh, helping people through their uh, addiction recovery, um, especially with this opioid epidemic that we face. And we can Absolutely. we can talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, unfortunately, in this Congress, there hasn't been a lot that has come out of the House that's really. Uh, going to accomplish much most of its very partisan legislation that's going to die in the in the u.s senate uh and then this week uh we had a a bill uh to fund the government a budget agreement a budget deal that um uh, continues uh this country uh, down the road of bankruptcy uh a fiscally irresponsible budget agreement uh that not only um uh uh, busts the the spending caps under the the 2011 law, the Budget Control Act, but it effectively eliminates any future uh, spending caps uh, altogether, and uh, it would over time add 1.7 trillion dollars to the national debt with no offsets, and that's very important. I've in the past voted for bills, uh, budget agreements that I didn't particularly like, but 
which had some offsets and which kept the Budget Control Act in place. This one does not. Now, one thing uh, I I certainly so you voted against. I it. voted no. I voted no. Um, you know, keeping my commitment to my constituents when I originally ran for Congress that I would vote to force the government to live within its means and 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 start addressing the nation's looming debt crisis. And uh, it's really uh, a scary situation when yeah. you think in just a few years. Uh, based on the current spending trajectory and based on the increased spending that we are now adding uh, to our uh, our total federal outlays, that interest on the national debt will exceed uh, what we spend on national defense. Uh, wow. that's, that's a dangerous situation. Effectively, because we're running a trillion-dollar deficit, effectively what we're doing is, is we are, uh, in order to pay for non-mandatory uh, spending, so-called discretionary spending, Basically, all of that we're borrowing. So yeah. the the military uh, paying for the FBI and law enforcement, uh, paying for the State Department operations, paying for uh, health care, some of some of the discretionary health care, like an investment in medical research, the Department of Education, all of that discretionary spending um, is now borrowed money every every year because. Over 70% of all federal outlays on an annual basis are now consumed by a so-called mandatory autopilot spending, spending that we don't even appropriate for. Right. But the reason why I voted against this budget agreement is that uh, while ultimately the only way we're going to balance the budget and reduce the debt is to reform mandatory spending programs, entitlement programs, or, or welfare programs, the, uh, the, third sa- rail, the safety net programs, then we should at least at minimum, Congress needs to hold the line on non-defense discretionary spending. President Trump and uh, S- Senator McConnell and uh, Leader McCarthy, Minority Leader McCarthy, the Republicans, they were put in a bad position, frankly, because the military does need stability and certainty. This bill does provide that. It, it, it continues getting us back to where we need to be in terms of addressing the readiness crisis and upgrading uh, our uh, military preparedness, providing the the uh, the military with the certainty it needs and and uh, you know allowing us to continue to invest in our our military and continue to invest in our, our men and women uh, in uniform uh, through pay raises the the problem is that in order to do that they also in this agreement guarantee a massive surge in non-defense discretionary spending in many cases in programs that that I just simply cannot justify that are wasteful government programs so. This is another example of Washington business as usual, and I just uh, don't think that um, we can continue down this road. Yeah, you said in uh, a thing you you uh, texted to me, ultimately we will never balance the federal budget and reduce national debt until we reform mandatory autopilot spending, which now represents over 70% of all annual outlays. But until politicians can muster the fortitude to do that, Congress should at minimum hold the line on non-defense discretionary spending. That's right. This bill doesn't do that. Yeah. This bill this bill uh, increases non-defense discretionary spending more than we have uh, since before the Budget Control Act. And, and we've got to get our fiscal house in order because this is, this is becoming an emergency, a national emergency. We have a $22 trillion national debt. Now, I want to make a point. Uh, uh, any of our left-of-center friends who are listening out there, uh, they always talk about tax cuts. Well, if you didn't pass the tax cuts bill, no. If we didn't pass the tax cuts bill, we'd be in much worse situation. Yeah. The reality is we are we have we are taking in an historic level of revenue right now. 
We, right. we have never even with the tax cut. With, with the tax cuts, we have more revenue than we ever have before. Right. We have we are bringing in more revenue this year with the tax cuts than we did before the tax cuts. Why? Because unemployment is at a 50-year low. That means there are more taxpayers. That means more people have jobs. And and we're bringing in more revenue not because people are paying a higher rate of tax, but because uh, there are more taxpayers and therefore higher levels of revenue. Economic growth is a part of this. We need economic growth coupled with fendi- uh, spending uh, discipline. Uh, and then we have to have the, as I, as I said in that statement, we have to have the fortitude to look the American people in the eye, especially younger generations of Americans, and say, look, if we don't reform Social Security and Medicare now, you won't have it. You're paying taxes on it. You're paying taxes um, on your payroll taxes as a worker right now. But if we do not reform Social Security and Medicare now for future generations, uh, we can we can hold harmless current seniors, current retirees. But for future generations, we need to reform those programs so that, number one, the government doesn't break its promise to those future retirees, those current workers. And secondly, so we can save our country from bankruptcy. Right. Tell me a little bit about uh, what what it's like being in the minority right now. Well, you know, I was going to say, um, you know, I, I, I didn't want to be a Debbie Downer, but it's just the reality that most of the bills that are being brought to the floor by Speaker Pelosi, by Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, they're very partisan bills. Yeah, They're getting very few Republican votes, not because we don't want to help uh, uh, forge bipartisan compromises that actually move the country forward, but because these are deliberately designed uh, with uh, poison pills and par- very partisan um, uh, legislation. We're, we're not getting infrastructure done. Uh, Speaker Pelosi and uh, and the majority leader, they have decided to not bring the USMCA to the floor for a vote. Which and, is? Which, which is NAFTA 2.0. It's the uh, it's the much better trade deal that uh, President Trump has negotiated with Canada and Mexico that would create uh, $68 billion in ish, additional economic output for this country every year. It would represent uh, an immediate surge of about 176,000 new jobs, most of which would be in the manufacturing sector. Frankly, it's better for labor. Uh, it's better for la- labor. Unions should love this. The Democrats should love this. But uh, it's so partisan on the part of the, the House Democratic leadership. There's this sense that, oh, well, if we bring USMCA to the floor, our members, our Democrats, some of them will vote for it. Most of the Republicans will vote for it. It will pass. And guess what? That means President Trump will get a big victory. We yeah. can't we can't allow that and to happen. And can't allow it to happen. I, I'm still hopeful that we will get a vote, but it's huge for Kentucky. This would be a big deal for auto manufacturing, for Toyota. The Kentucky Farm Bureau supports it. Toyota supports it. The bourbon distillers support it. USMCA would represent great progress and give us momentum to go to the EU and go to China and encircle China and get a better trade deal in other places as well. So USMCA is really important, but House Democrats so far have blocked a vote, a vote that they know full well would pass the House. So that's a bit of a frustration. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're just getting very partisan uh, bills. Uh, even when we have bipartisan bills, uh, we had three bipartisan bills to address uh, the increased cost in prescription drugs. Um, the Democrats put that in a package with a bunch of poison pills to 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 um, uh, to basically um, spend more money on Obamacare. And so, you know, no no Republicans could support a bill that would just throw wasteful money at navigators 
uh, as opposed to actual patients. So that's that's kind of what we're dealing with. But to your point, what is it like being in the minority? I've been actually encouraged and pleasantly surprised. That's that, good. That I have found purpose in the minority, and I have found not just in terms of you know voting no because uh, I want to make sure that that we're on record as opposing bad legislation that would increase the national debt or which would um, throw more money at failed policies uh, or which would violate our constitutional rights. What, where I really find purpose is in, in the, the work in the minority with oversight over the executive branch. And obviously we have um, Trump administration regulators and administrators in place there where we can work through oversight uh, to get uh, the uh, executive branch to make the right decisions on various uh, regulatory reform initiatives. That's been a productive part of being in the minority. The other productive part of being in the minority is to focus on Kentucky. Right. And we've been able to deliver grants back home, uh, gr- grants that are within the budget constraints that exist now, yes. that are already appropriated funds, and it's a matter of going out and fighting for our area. The- these funds are going to be spent somewhere. I want to make sure that uh, they are spent on worthwhile projects, not pork, but worthwhile projects right. that will spur economic development for example, in the workforce development area, where we can get more of our people's skills, where we can get more of our people in the workforce. The economy, Tom, is doing so well right now. Obviously, there's headwinds. We might see a rate cut from the Fed because of external pressures from slowdown in global growth because of trade negotiations and uncertainty there, uh, because of the lack of a USMCA and the inability of House Democrats to bring that to a vote. But uh, it's... I don't really, frankly, believe we need a rate cut. The economy is doing really, really well right, right now. Right. Uh, the market, the stock market is at an all-time high, and you have unemployment at a 50-year low. Wages are up. Real wages, inflation-adjusted wages are up 3% over a year over year. Last year, we, we followed a 3%-plus growth rate last year with the first quarter 3% growth rate, even if we slow down a little bit. Uh, I do scratch my head a little bit about why we're, you know— um, uh, Talking about a rate cut. Yeah, using those arrows, uh, taking those arrows out of the quiver right now when yeah. we, we might need them later down the road. Right. But at the at the end of the day, what all of that means, the strong economy means that the labor market is so healthy. There are 1.6 million job openings in this country, more than unemployed people in this country. Good heavens. And, and so there's the the real the real um, I guess uh, asterisks to this good economy is that. Um, there is uh, deficient labor supply in this country. Part of that has to do with the opioid epidemic. Right. And even the chairman of the Federal Reserve talks about how we had 72,000 Americans die of an overdose last year. That's taking a whole generation of workers out of the labor pool. Right. The other thing is, of course, the skills gap. We're pushing more apprenticeship uh, programs. Um, and, and we need to reform the welfare system, not just to save the, the, the country from the debt crisis, but also because we want people to who are able-bodied and work capable to achieve their God-given potential. We think that work is a blessing, not a punishment, and right. we need to get more of these people into into the labor market because employers are desperate. They need them. Tax cuts and deregulation have allowed them to create jobs. They just don't have people to fill them, and we need to stop paying able-bodied, work-capable adults to not work. Yeah, I agree. And and, and so that has uh, the, uh, multiple uh, virtuous uh uh, ramifications, one of which is that it, it, it will help us uh, fill these jobs and address the, the labor supply challenges that we have in this country. So 
we're, we're putting forward policy recommendations on apprenticeships and welfare reform and opioid addiction recovery initiatives that address that issue. And I think we're, we can get some bipartisan support on that. Um, and then we're focusing on those signature industries of Kentucky in the minority, and we're getting results, whether it's industrial hemp and uh, holding uh, federal financial regulators accountable so that we can bank legal industrial hemp businesses right here in central right. Kentucky, whether it is um, working on the horse industry, uh, again, trying to achieve uniformity in medication rules and also addressing a problem with the Department of Justice and a memo that was issued that uh, is impeding uh, um, the advanced deposit wagering uh, platforms that uh, rely on access to U.S. financial institutions to process uh, wagers uh, across uh, the interstate commerce, which is legal under federal law and has been since 1978. We're addressing uh, some other issues with um, some labor issues with the uh, horse industry right now. And then, of course, the bourbon distillers, uh, they need an extension of the tax cuts. They benefited significantly. Our signature bourbon industry benefited significantly from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, that uh, every Democrat opposed. This bill needs to be extended. The provisions in the bill uh, that cut the federal excise tax and uh, and included my legislation, the Aged Distilled Spirits Competitiveness Act. That's a big deal for the bourbon industry. And we continue to weigh in with the administration about the negative impact of retaliatory tariffs from Europe on our bourbon exports. Right. If we get USMCA done, this good deal that the president has negotiated, that gives us greater leverage with Europe. And um, I've talked to Ambassador Lighthizer, our U.S. trade representative. Um, he knows when I come talking to him, it's about Kentucky. It's about Kentucky bourbon. Yeah. It's about Toyota. And it's about Kentucky agriculture. That's great, Andy. That's fantastic. What's uh, just very quickly, we, we've only got a little bit of time and I know you need to go on. On the Financial Services Committee, what are you guys looking at right there? Well, so, you know, this uh, this has been a different experience being in the minority. Uh, yeah. ch Chairwoman Maxine Waters uh, is now leading our committee, so she's setting the agenda. Most of her preoccupation is with investigating the president, to be honest with you. They've subpoenaed um, something like 12 financial institutions on a fishing expedition for financial records of the president and his family and the Trump Organization. Uh, trying to find some kind of connection to Russia. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's it's really we had this Mueller, we had this dud uh, yeah. in in the. Judicial. He didn't even know what Fusion GPS well, was. Well, you know, it's just disappointing. Are we really going to investigate Russian collusion? Are we really going to actually investigate that? If we did, we should actually look to where the collusion actually was. Right. Um, and, and and where the collusion was 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 with Fusion GPS, the Clinton campaign, the DNC paying. Uh, for uh, the, the, this this fake dossier that was used to commit a fraud on the FISA court, but right. you know, put, putting aside all of that, um, what we're we're still trying to do some productive things in the Financial Services Committee. Of course, the Democrats set the agenda. So, for example, they br they bring in uh, the CEOs of BB&T and SunTrust, two regional banks, Main Street banks for the most part. They're large Main Street banks that are um, merging, um, not because they want to become mega banks, as the Democrats say in their narrative, but because of Dodd-Frank and the avalanche of regulations, uh, th these two Main Street institutions need to combine in order to deal with the costs of financial regulation. And 
if the Democrats were really concerned about mergers and consolidation and banking, then they should peel back more of this uh, regulatory onslaught, which is forcing banks to combine. We've had huge consolidation since Dodd-Frank, since uh, overregulation of the financial services sector. So what Dodd-Frank and all of all of those uh, regulations actually did was force banks to get bigger. Yeah. Uh, so there's more too-big-to-fail banks now. Really what this is about, when we do our oversight, we look at this uh, bank merger, this bank is not going to become what's called a GSIB or a global systemic important bank. It's still not going to be that big. Um, but what it is mainly is a technology play that's going to allow – the customers of BB&T in Kentucky to enjoy greater tech, tech, uh, financial technology. Yeah. Uh, and when we b- build out broadband in rural America, we can have more efficient access to financial services through f- financial technology, so-called fintech. Yeah. Um, that's really what's going on here. We're, we, we were pointing that out, and the new institution is going to be called um, uh, Truist, is the name of the, of the new newly formed bank. Uh, they're complying with all of the regulatory requirements, um, and 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 in fact, it, it, w- one argument can be made, and we tease this out in the in the hearing, is that by one minute. B- by making this institution more resilient, uh, it actually will provide greater competition to the right. big Wall Street banks. That's great, Andy. I just want to thank you for the work you're doing. Oh well, thanks. I appreciate you so much. Well, thanks a lot. We're gonna we're gonna uh, keep our oversight over the Fed. Uh, and Treasury, and you know we're doing other things in national security as well. You know we just passed out of the out of the House the National Defense Authorization Act, which I voted against because it it, it didn't do enough to help our military, and it, there was a lot of problems with it. But that bill, my amendment to impose the toughest economic sanctions on North Korea, that amendment passed and was included in that bill, and hopefully it will stay in when the Senate improves the version of the of the NDAA bill, which is a must pass bill. Thank you. Appreciate it. Enjoy uh, your your run this morning and uh, take care of yourself. All right. Thanks a lot, Tom. Appreciate it. All right. You've been listening to Andy Barr, our 6th District Representative. Uh, This is the Tom Dupree Show. It's News Radio 630 WLAP. From iHeartRadio, number one for podcasts, Hell and Gone. I would not buy the story that she fell off this little porch. My daughter was beaten to death. I'm Katherine Townsend, and I'm heading back to Arkansas on a new case to find out what happened to Janie Ward on September 9, 1989. When there's no justice done, it hurts a lot of people. It hurts the whole town. Hear it right here Wednesday night at 8 on News Radio 630 WLAP. Catch the rising stars of tennis July 29th through August 4th at the Kentucky Bank Tennis Championships. It's USTA Pro Circuit Tennis at its best. Former players include Grand Slam champion Sloan Stevens and Naomi Osaka, plus John Isner and James Blake. Who will be the next superstars of tennis? Find out July 29th through August 4th at the Kentucky Bank Tennis Championships at UK's Hillary J. Boone Tennis Complex. For tickets and tournament info, visit LexingtonChallenger.com. See you at the courts. Are you looking for fun and exciting gaming action in Kentucky? Well, look no further than Red Mile Gaming and Racing. Come play one of our 900 games. And new members who sign up for a Winner's Circle card will qualify for a special rebate offer up to $200. Guaranteed. That means everyone who signs up at Red Mile Gaming and Racing walks away a winner. Red Mile Gaming and Racing. Red hot excitement. Visit player services or redmilekay.com for details. 
Two Americans have been arrested in Rome in connection with the killing of a police officer. The U.S. citizens from San Francisco, their names have not been released. ABC's David Wright has more from the London Bureau. The authorities rounded up the two Americans and several North Africans based on some grainy surveillance footage uh, that placed them at the scene, they say. Police say they're both students from San Francisco, both 19 years old. No names confirmed as of yet. Both are being held in a prison in Rome. They're charged with aggravated murder and attempted extortion. The young officer killed was a newlywed. Some members of the USA Water Polo senior national teams were injured, and two South Korean men died when part of a floor collapsed at a nightclub in South Korea. The women's team just winning the world championship there. And the Supreme Court lifted a lower court injunction Friday night, clearing the path for the president to use military funds to build part of a southern border wall. That case, though, still has to be heard in full in the lower court. Michelle Franz and ABC News. Through the overnight hours, temperatures get down into the lower 70s and into the 60s by Saturday morning. And then for the start of your weekend, we're tracking some summer-like conditions. Highs returning back around average into the mid to upper 80s. Some humidity levels remaining a little bit on the higher side. However, most will be staying dry. We're not really expecting too many storms. I'm WKYT meteorologist Adam Burniston for News Radio 630 WLAP. Broadcasting live 24-7 from the heart of Big Blue Nation. This is News Radio 630 WLAP, an iHeart Radio station. Paying too much for car insurance? At Root Insurance, we could cut your rate in half. Most car insurance companies base your rate on things like age, gender, and credit score. Root bases your rate primarily on how you drive, not who you are. Here's how it works. The Root app uses mobile technology to measure your driving behavior. Just drive like you normally would for a few weeks and the app does the rest. Good drivers could save up to 52% on car insurance. And right now, we will give you $15 just for completing the test drive. Just download the free Root app. Enter the code Root Radio. That's R-O-O-T Radio. Get $15 to try an app that could cut your car insurance rates in half. See how much you could save. Savings based on national reviews reported by actual customers. Offer good through August 1st, 2019. Not available in all states. We reserve the right to refuse to quote any individual the premium rate for the insurance advertised herein. Cannot be combined with any other offer. This special offer ends soon. Don't miss out. Download the free Root app and enter Root Radio today. I'm Baratunde Thurston, and this is a special episode of Spit, where we get into the heart of the matter about DNA and its implications for data privacy. We're joined by two experts, computer scientist Gina Matthews and data privacy and security executive Ariel Silverstone. Companies now have an incentive to request an overarching privacy framework in the United States. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts. Find Spit and iHeartRadio podcasts with 23andMe on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. 630 WLAP. I've got a tiger by the tail that's plain to see. I won't be much when you get through with me. Well, I'm a losing weight and a Back on the Tom Dupree show, I for I didn't forget to. I didn't ha- have time because I had Andy for a very short period of time to do my scripture reading, which I like to do uh, at the beginning of each show. Um, this is Philippians. Chapter uh, 4, starting at verse 6. Be careful or be 
anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. These things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful but lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And that is the uh, Apostle Paul speaking to the uh, Philippians. Now, anybody uh, who was watching the news this week saw that uh, Robert Mueller was on TV testifying to two different um, committees of Congress. And uh, the Mueller investigation, of course, was designed to see whether Trump campaign colluded with Russia. Well, we know that indeed the Hillary Clinton campaign did and did collude with Russia. And yet uh, Mueller's ignorance of GPS is interesting. This is from the Federalist. Um, written by Margot Cleveland, says Mueller's ignorance of Fusion GPS proves his investigation was a sham. Robert Mueller's testimony before the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committees provided yet further proof that the entire special counsel investigation was a political witch hunt. While Democrats succeeded in eliciting affirmative responses from Mueller, to their dramatic reading of the special counsel report at Wednesday's prosecution of Trump in absentia. In other words, this was this, this it was a trial basically about President Trump. It was Mueller's ignorance when he queried about Fusion GPS report that exposed both the proceedings and the special counsel as a sham. Fusion GPS for those of you who don't aren't aware, was the company that was engaged by the Clinton administration to obtain this steel dossier that was supposed to be the dirt on Trump. And what he surely saw as an introductory question, Representative Stephen Chabot asked Mueller to confirm that the name of the firm that produced the Stephen Christopher Steele dossier was Fusion. I'm not familiar with that, the former special, special counsel responded. Taken aback by Mueller's ignorance, Chabot stressed it's not a trick question before attempting to ask Mueller about Fusion GPS and the Steele dossier. That's outside my purview, Mueller testified. How is that even possible? How could he not 
if he was looking at Russian influence, how could he not um, know about Fusion GPS? And yet, that was so. Uh, Representative Matt Gates said to Mueller, no, it is exactly your purview, Director Mueller, and here's why. Only one or two things is possible. Either Steele made this whole thing up and there was never any Russian telling him of this vast criminal conspiracy that you didn't find, or the Russians lied to Steele. Now, if the Russians were lying to Steele to undermine our confidence in our duly elected president, that would seem to be precisely your purview because in your opening you stated that your organizing principle was to fully and thoroughly investigate Russia's interference. But you weren't interested in whether Russians were interfering through Christopher Steele. And if Steele was lying, then you should have charged him with lying. But you say nothing about that in your report. But Mueller persisted. It's not my purview. Others are investigating what you address. The DOJ and the FBI should be responsive to questions on these particular issues. You know, I wanted to basically say, well, Robert Mueller is a good all-American guy, and he was simply... Uh, acting in the role that he was given, which is to investigate Russian interference and that he did the very best that he could with the job that was given to him. I was willing to give him that benefit of the doubt, as were many Americans. But it seems to be becoming clearer and clearer that all he wanted to do was investigate Trump and find things that might bring down President Trump and find collusion on the Trump side and ignore it on the Hillary Clinton side of the of the campaign trail. And uh, it just seems like that's not what happened. What what happened was well what that is exactly what happened was he ignored uh anything that the, the Clinton campaign might have done. And I had thought that President Trump was using pretty strong language when he called the thing a witch hunt. But now I believe that's what it was. Um, Jay Seculo says that Mueller's testimony shows he conducted a witch hunt. Time to declare case closed. Former spe special counsel Robert Mueller's testimony Wednesday before two House committees confirmed what we already knew, his two-year investigation of Russia's meddling in our 2016 presidential election was fatally tainted by deep political bias and was in fact designed to harass and derail President Trump. Mueller's testimony exposed troubling deficiencies of his investigation. It is now clearer than ever this probe was conducted by a small group of partisan prosecutors who as hard as they tried were unable to establish either obstruction conspiracy or collusion between the trump campaign and russia 
It's also clear that the special counsel conducted his lengthy and costly investigation unimpeded by President Trump. They say that there were statements that Trump made calling it a witch hunt that was an attempt at obstruction of justice, but he was able to get all the information he needed without an obstruction from the White House. Wednesday morning's hearing before the House Judiciary Committee was at times difficult to watch. Mueller had no idea what was in his own report. It's no wonder that he demanded to have his deputy at his side, just so someone could point out the pages in the report, since he was obviously unfamiliar with its content. How is this the case? I don't understand that. Trump summed it up best when he told reporters that Mueller did a horrible job both today and with respect to the investigation. But in all fairness, he had nothing to work with. Mueller's testimony was ripe with was rife with inaccuracies. When questioned by Rep- Representative Doug Collins of Georgia, Mueller said that collusion and conspiracy are not synonymous, and yet page 180 of his own report said that the collusion is largely synonymous with conspiracy. So it just appears to me that this was a setup for Trump and that these guys did not do a very good job. When asked if he was contradicting his report, Mueller's answer was, not when I read it. (laughs) And twice, Mueller distanced himself from attempts by Democratic House members to walk him through their version of the elements of an obstruction charge. As he told Representative Ted Lieu of California, the only thing I want to add is going through elements with you does not mean I subscribe to what you're trying to prove through these elements. At one point, Mueller acted like he was unfamiliar with the firm Fusion GPS, which played a major role in the Russian investigation. Fusion GPS is the group that Hillary Clinton's campaign and the Democratic National Committee paid to produce the fake, salacious, and unverified Steele dossier. Even though former British spy Christopher Steele was identified in Mueller's reports multiple times, It just simply doesn't make sense. The next question for Mueller should have been, why was this report even written in the first place, especially if you'd already concluded that no charges could be brought against the president? Representative John Ratcliffe of Texas asked a pointed question that noted President Trump has not been treated fairly in the investigation. Can you give me an example other than Donald Trump where the Justice Department determined that an investigated person was not exonerated because their innocence was not conclusively determined, Ratcliffe asked. I cannot, Mueller responded, but this is a unique situation. No, sir, this is not a unique situation. That is not the standard of law. You are not the judge or the jury. You either bring charges or you don't. Mueller's testimony Wednesday made it clear this whole ordeal has been a political witch hunt. Here's the bottom. There was no collusion, no conspiracy, no obstruction between the Trump campaign and Russia. Case closed. This is by Jay Sekulow. He's the chief counsel of the Council of the American Center for Law and Justice, which focuses on constitutional law. Stay with us. 
You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show. It's News Radio 630 WLAP. From earthquakes. You gotta be prepared. This is a wake-up call. To milkshakes. Contained quick drying cement. And everything in between. We are here for one reason. The news, news never stops. Thing never stops. On News Radio 630 WLAP. Hi, this is Tom Dupree Jr. What does a good financial advisor do? Perhaps it comes down to asking the right questions instead of having all the answers. For instance, should I take Social Security now or later? Am I really ready to retire? Is my money invested properly to pay me an income during retirement? These are a few of the questions that might come up in your discussion with a financial advisor. Good questions are what a financial advisor may be able to help you with. You will come up with the answers on your own. If you're not sure about some of these things and need a sounding board, call Dupree Financial Group at 859-233-0400 for a complimentary appointment. Also, you can listen to the Tom Dupree Show on Saturdays at 7 a.m. at News Radio 630 WLAP. That's Dupree Financial Group at 859-233-0400. 630 WLAP. Back on the Tom Dupree Show. Let's talk a little bit about what Andy Barr discussed earlier in the first half hour on the show. Uh, he, he was talking about um, one of the things he talked about was uh, legislation that affects Kentucky and uh, some of those are tax breaks for the distilling industry. Uh, ways to get uh, the hemp industry on its feet. Those are good, noteworthy uh, things that should be taken into consideration. And uh, he talked about the spending bill that he voted against. Um, I believe that... uh, we are spending our way into bankruptcy. Uh, the country, you know, as long as as long as the Federal Reserve can print dollars, um, we stay in business. But when it's when the uh, world and the markets begin to refuse to take those dollars, to take those government bonds that we issue, um, that's when we could run into real trouble. And that's when you debase your currency to the point that uh, nobody wants to accept it anymore. So I want to give kudos to Andy for standing up and fighting against what he sees as being uh, a debasement of the currency and uh, overspending that should not occur, but is occurring at a rapid rate. And, you know, it's, it's folks, it's getting bad in, in terms of the amount of debt that we have, $22 trillion, and the amount of uh, deficit that we continue to run. It's a, it's a bad deal. 
I want to get in this last uh, article here before Philip comes in. How Democrats are shorting the white voters for 2020. As you know, there's a presidential campaign going on. And uh, whenever there's a presidential campaign, there's jockeying for position, especially of of uh, on the Democratic side where uh, you've got a ton of people running for president. The exaggeration of this is by Peter Van Buren in the American conservative. The exaggeration of white privilege has been a cornerstone of progressivism. It is also one of the ways Democrats risk losing the 2020 presidential race as it leads inexorably to the devaluation of voters needed to clinch the electoral college. The problem with a race-based victim-washed vision of 2019 America is that being white is not enough and never has been. I was a diplomat for 24 years, about as privileged a job on paper as you can get, but being inside the State Department, being white was only a start. The real Criteria was pale, male, and Yale. Being white was great, but only if you were also a man. Women were less were stuck in less desirable jobs. No surprise then that the State Department has been sued over the years by its women and black diplomats. But white and male only got you to the door. The good jobs required the background, preferably via an Ivy League school. A sort of proud graduate of the Ohio State University, my privilege only went so far. I couldn't fake it. But anyway, he goes on to talk about um, race as the Democrats here. Let's, this is what I'm looking for. The candidates then either dismiss what they call white angst as a Fox narrative or condemn it as supremacy, Nazism, and fascism, words that have lost all meanings. Democrats crow about changing demographics that will turn America into a non-majority white nation, then celebrate the end of privilege as the country depletes its stock of Caucasians. They fail to see that the salient statistic of America is not that the 61% who are white is falling, but that a tiny group, the top one-tenth of percent of households, now hold the same amount of wealth as the bottom 90%. Every white voter in every swing state feels the pull of that. They're afraid of losing their place, not to black people, but to the economy. And every one of those voters knows that the solutions Democrats propose will not help them. They are also unlikely to fix racism, but that's another matter. Mayor Pete Buttigieg Douglas' plan provides billions for black businesses and colleges and aims to reduce the prison population by half. Biden wants to perform, provide former felons with housing. Kamala Harris has a $100 billion plan for black ownership. Everyone on NBC, MSNBC favors reparations. Nothing excuses at the times dangerous behavior of Donald Trump and some of his supporters, yet declaring all supporters of Trump to be racist is far too crude an understanding. Bottom line is that the Democrats are pandering to black and minority voters and are essentially creating a color barrier and saying that if you're white, 
you're either a racist or you're uh, a white supremacist and that that's the category that they're going to put you into. This this kind of thing backfired on them in the 2016 election, but they just can't help themselves. They have to do it again. And so in 2020, you're likely to see uh, this kind of thing going on again. And uh, it's, it's taken a major party, the Democrats, and, and basically sidelining them and, and making them into a party that isn't relevant to a large part of the population nowadays. Goes back to this article to say it's time to admit that racism is not the core problem, the one Pete Buttigieg claims. It threatens to unravel the American project. They were in Youngstown, uh, Ohio, talking to the people of Youngstown, and they were talking about opioids, but they were saying that that it was mainly connected to black people. It was more of a black problem and that black people should be helped more. But the problem is not black and white. It's up and down that People in Youngstown, Ohio, when they saw the uh, steel industry being taken away from them, they knew that race didn't matter as much as economics. It was more about what happened to them and their jobs. Racism is not the core problem. In 2019, it's an exaggeration driving a key Democratic strategy, betting the White House on unreliable voters. In higher, in, in, since the 1980s, blacks have turned out in higher numbers than whites, percentage-wise, only for the Obama elections against a body of whites they devalue. This is a risky strategy. It alienates too many while challenging other older Americans of all races to vote for the party that now gleefully denounces Thomas Jefferson as a slaver and throws its own vice president emeritus and front runner under the racism bus. Voters, meanwhile, wonder when the reparations for their lost jobs and homes will come. This strategy is not going to work, I believe. That's going to make, I believe, Trump win another election unless... The Democrats begin to start embrace white voters also. You can't divide people along racial lines and keep doing this. Stay with us. Philip Sexton's in the house. He's here with us right now as we speak. And we're going to talk about markets and things having to do with the economy. Stay with us. News Radio 630 WLAP.